Welcome to the Mortis Story Podcast. I'm so glad that you have come along. This is going to be a great show. I'm very honored and thankful to have the guest that I'm going to introduce in just a minute here. And I know that some of you are probably have clicked into this now because you saw who the guest is. And so welcome to the Mortis Story Podcast. This comes to you from Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And we do that through a host of programs from bachelor's, master's, doctoral degrees, um, lay initiatives like the Wesley Institute, which starts just after Labor Day this year. And we're excited that we're one of the first seminaries approved by the Global Methodist Church. And we offer a course of study for pastors in the Global Methodist Church. And over the last four months, we have added 250 Global Methodist Church pastors. What an amazing thing. It's such a blessing to serve these students and these people who are serving the church, this uh, Global Methodist Church, particularly as it's emerging. Secondly, I'm thankful to my friend, Keith Waters and WPO Development, who helped make some of the kind of the technical aspects of this podcast happen. They've been a sponsor from the very beginning, and you can find out more about them at WPO Development. Keith and his team lead people through capital campaigns and have successfully done so for more than 250 churches, schools, and other organizations as well. So I'd love for you to check them out. Finally, I just want you to know a few things that are available from andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. My new book, Contender, Going Deeper in the Book of Jude, is available there. And I have a new course. It's a biblical journey beyond this world. How about that for a title? It's talking about heaven and other destinations we're describing. So thinking about the afterlife and the biblical case for heaven, it's five sessions, video sessions with discussion guides and bonus content. You can find that, that at my website. It's just come out just in time for your fall kind of Sunday school class or small group needs. But now I'm really glad and honored to welcome into the podcast Professor Nancy Piercy, who is a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. Nancy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm good. Glad to be here. I have so benefited from your writing over the last few years. I first came in contact with your writing through Love the Body, um, Love Thy Body, and that really put a few things together for me. And then I got connected to several other things in, in, of your writing, Total Truth, and I felt like, oh man, now I finally, I finally have somebody I've been looking for for a long time, and it was you. And I'm so thankful for this new book that you have, The Toxic War on Masculinity. This is a fascinating book, and I'm so thankful for it at this time, particularly coming from a female scholar. So as we get started here, I'm interested. Can we start with some good news? I know th this is one of these challenges. People often accuse evangelical Christian men of being oppressive patriarchs, prone to abuse. But you make the surprising claim that they test out as having the lowest levels of abuse and divorce. Now, that was a little surprise to me. Can you explain that? It was a, certainly a surprise to me as well, because we've all heard the media narratives, right, that any notion of male headship in the home is going to turn men into overbearing, domineering, tyrannical patriarchs. In fact, I'll give yeah. you just one example. Um, it was easy to find examples on Google, but um, just one. This was the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which came after right. the Me, Me Too movement. And she said the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. Mm. And social scientists, like psychologists, sociologists, were reading these accusations and saying, where's your evidence? You know, you're making mm. these charges, but where's your data? And so they went out and did the studies. And I quote some 
12, a dozen or so different studies that found that the the actual studies found the exact opposite of the media narrative. And so this was incredibly surprising. Evangelical men test out the highest, the top of the list in terms of being loving husbands and fathers. And by the way, huh. they do interview the wives separately, which is important. Yes. I sometimes get pushback on that. You know, of course, she's going to say she's happy. Her husband's sitting right there. Right. No, sure. These were large secular surveys. Um, not done by Christians, and okay. so the w- women were were interviewed separately, and so it was the wives themselves reporting that they were the happiest with their husbands' love and affection. Evangelical mm-hmm. fathers test out as being the most engaged with their children, both in terms of shared activities like uh, church youth group and sports, and in terms of discipline like setting limits on screen time and enforcing bedtime. Evangelical couples have the lowest rate of divorce of any major group in America. And the real surprise, they have the lowest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any major group in America. Sometimes it's good to sort of crystallize it with a particular quote. So let me give you one of those. Um, My my go-to sociologist, so to speak, the one who did the largest study is Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia. Uh, by the way, he's not an evangelical. He's a Catholic. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> uh, uh, a lot of people find that, you know, well, he wasn't necessarily trying to find that Protestant men test out the top, but they do. And here's what he wrote. Just to give you a sense of his stature, he writes in places like the New York Times. So this is a okay. quote from a New York Times article. He says, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Huh. And of course, they talk about the impact on wives, especially because supposedly it's the wives who are being oppressed and silenced and so on. But the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. And then he turns to his fellow sociologists who, uh, I don't know if you realize, but it's a, it's a very secularized discipline. So these yes. are mostly mostly secular people. And listen to this. This is my favorite line. He says, academics need to cast aside their prejudices about wow. religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular. Conservative, Protestant, married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. So this is something that even Christians don't know. It's not out in the you know public arena. I had to go digging in the academic literature just to find these studies. And so this was really the reason I wanted to write the book. I said, okay, we need to get this information out there. We need to encourage Christian men who are doing well that the you know all the media attacks are just not true for Christian men who you know are c- truly committed, attend church regularly. They actually test out as the best, most loving husbands in all America. So it's time for us to encourage Christian men. That's that's my goal here. Well, I love that positive message throughout this to obviously as a Christian man, an evangelical man, I, I appreciate it. But nevertheless, like I, I, I've, I've, is it a myth that Christians get divorced at the same rates as the rest of society? I, it seems like that's just a common thing that people assume to be true. Yes, and it is the first uh, pushback I always get. Um, and in fact, in my research, I found that it it is one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. 
So wow. there's a reason we've all heard this. So, Amazing. But the researchers went back to the data and they made that all important distinction between men who are committed and attend church regularly versus nominal Christians, cultural Christians, men who on a survey like this might check the Baptist box, for example, right, but who don't actually attend church, rarely if at all. And these men test out shockingly differently. They, okay. Their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They mm. spend the least amount of time with their children. They have the highest rate of divorce, even higher than secular men. And wow. the real shocker, they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any major group in America, even higher than secular men. So this is where we get a lot of our gotcha. stereotypes, negative stereotypes of evangelicals. If you take if you take a study of just evangelicals and and push them together, obviously you're gonna your statistics are gonna be misleading because you're gonna get men who are better than secular men yes. combined with men who are worse than secular men. So the numbers are very yeah. misleading. So, yes, so that's, this... that's it's important for the church to realize that they're, that they're dealing with these two very different groups of men. I think it's helpful too, particularly as we're now sad. I mean, I'm going to say sadly, I'm going to reveal my cards that we're in the presidential election cycle. It's like, here it comes again. And and people will often say evangelicals do this. Well, I've often wondered like what, and, and it's that, that probably this similar distinction could be helpful as we decide like how people are saying evangelicals. And I say that in quotes are voting. Exactly. And in fact, um, there have been books on evangelicals that say up front, I'm not even talking about evangelicals as a theological position. Right. I'm talking it as a political interest group. <laughs> and even teaching at a Christian college, by the way, I had some students object to my use of the word evangelical because they're like, what? I've only heard about evangelicals in a negative connotation. Sure. And, and so I had to put this in, in the book right at the beginning that I am using the term in its theological meaning right, and not its political meaning. And so, and, and church historians have some fairly common yeah. definitions. Uh, David Bebbington, who's yeah. a, a church historian in England, put out a definition that most people use. You know, they believe the Bible is true and there's God's word and the rule for life. Uh, they, they believe that personal relationship with God is more important than church rituals. They right. believe in evangelism. Um, there, was one, there was a fourth oh, one. Yeah, it's, uh, action, <laughs> oh, uh, activism. Oh, conversion. That yes. Everyone has to actually go through a conversion experience because I was raised Lutheran and we don't think that, <laughs> by okay. the way. Lutherans don't think that. Uh, Christian Reformed, Catholic, they often don't think that. When I say we need to evangelize our own kids, I get pushback from these more, the, the historians call them the churchly denominations, the ones who define their religion in terms of participating in church rituals. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that that's uh, less sincere or less real, but it's, it's just a different understanding of what it means to be a Christian. So evangelical means now you have a personal conversion experience and you have a personal relationship with God, and that's more important than churchly rituals. Anyway, that, so that's the definition of evangelical that yeah, I, I think it's helpful. I think we should we I think we should like reclaim that as best we can and even just the the root of the word being good news and like claiming that. I mean this we're going to use words that are are biblical words and words that like in David Bebbington and sometimes I think I've heard him talk about it saying like he never imagined that he would be so identified with the Bebbington quadrilateral but nevertheless like it's a really helpful historical tool to use well I think it's worth 
finding like fighting for it, so to speak. Now, I found something really interesting, uh, like you describe in the book that men are being torn between two competing scripts for masculinity. Could you tell us what those are? Yes, I'll start by giving you a little background, and that is that, um, which is not in the book, um, and that is that this has proven to be the most controversial book I've ever written, which did surprise me because Love Thy Body was on yeah, that's right. homosexuality, transgenderism, which has really exploded in our day. Um, but I, I ran a lot of classes and reading groups on the book because I like to get a lot of feedback, you know, rub off the rough, rough edges, right? Yes, and when sure. they would when they would tell their friends and family that we were going through a book on masculinity, invariably the first question was, whose side is she on? Wow. You know, with that with that tone, right? whose side is she on? And men tended to assume I was a male bashing feminist. Uh-huh. And progressives t- tended to think I was probably some angry, defensive reactionary. And so I put this study right at the beginning because it sort of disarms that initial hostility, the the two scripts for, for masculinity that came out of a study by a sociologist, not a Christian, um, but he's well known in his field. And so he gets invited to speak all around the globe. And so he came up with this clever experiment. He would ask young men two questions. The first question was, what does it mean to be a good man? Hmm. You know, if you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man all around the world. Young men had no trouble answering that. They would all say things like duty, honor, integrity, do the right thing, sacrifice, look out for the little guy, be generous, be a provider, be a protector, be responsible. And they would mm-hmm. just spill it out. And the, and the sociologists would say, well, where'd you learn that? And they didn't know. They'd say, well, it's mm. just in the air we breathe. Or if they were in a Western country, they would say, it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Okay. And then he would follow up with a second question. And he would say, okay, but what does it mean if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young man said, oh, no, that's completely different. Mm. That means be tough, be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, uh, play, play through pain, be competitive, get rich, get laid. I'm oh. using their, their language. Okay. And he said, and the sociologists concluded that men around the globe, I mean, from Brazil to Sweden to Australia, do know what the good man is. They do have that innate knowledge, that inherent knowledge. We would say it's because they're made in God's image. They do know what it means to be a good man. Mm-hmm. And these were non-Christian cultures. So I would say this is part of general revelation, right? That yeah. men do inherently know that their unique masculine strengths because they are stronger and bigger than women, but that their unique masculine strengths are not given them to just get whatever they want, but to protect, provide, to take care of the people that they love. And that seems to be an inherent knowledge. But many men feel a cultural constraint, a pressure to live up to what he called the real man, uh, which does include the more toxic traits, or at least if it's separated from the moral ideal of the good man, it can slide into traits like dominance and control and entitlement. And so it, knowing this, I think, gives us a, a, a better approach to these issues. Instead of accusing men of being toxic, most men do not respond well to being called toxic. Right. Nobody would. Yeah. 
so instead, I think the jo our job should be to, can we tap into that inherent innate knowledge in all men of what it means to be the good man? The mm. asp the, they do have the aspiration to be a good man. Uh, um, Romans 2, right? We all have a Amen. conscience. Yes. And so if we could tap into and support and encourage and affirm their understanding of the good man, that gives us a much more positive way to approach these issues. And, and also to argue that the biblical ethic is not contrary to their Amen. own inherent sense. You know, we're not imposing something alien on men when we ask them to live up to a biblical ethic. We are giving them something that's in tune with their own best understanding of what it means to be a good person Amen. and a good man in particular. Yes. What do you think people have in mind when they use the word toxic, toxic masculinity? To I and mean, what's what's the content behind that? I mean, you've, you've hit at it a little bit, but what it, you know, this came out as something that was a part of um, clinically diagnosed a few years ago. But what, what does it mean to be a you know toxic mas masculine person? Well, you know, can I answer that historically? Sure. Um, because one of the purposes of my book is to ask, where did that idea come from? That masculinity mm. is toxic. Yes. Yeah, we can't really stand against a cultural trend unless we know where it came from and how it developed. Sure. And so one of the key turning points that most people are not that familiar with, uh, in in terms of the secularizing of the script for masculinity, was the rise of Darwinian evolution. Yes, this was so interesting. Keep going. Keep sorry. Yeah, I love this. I, I do too. <laughs> I mean, I, do I don't I love it, but I mean, I, it was it connected the dots. Just like I was, was going to push people back to love thy body. It, I mean, that, I think it was 2013, 2014. I mean, it was a while ago. And that real it put together like abortion, transgenderism, all of the same sex behavior, these type of things re really came together. And I feel like this is another one of those lines, Nancy, that you're drawing for me. So thank you. I'm, so listen up, folks. Listen to what she's going to say. <laughs> So historically, I mean, if we are aware of the evolution controversy at all, we think about it in terms of genes and fossils. We don't actually realize how much of an impact it had on concepts of masculinity. But Darwinian thinkers began to say that the men who came out on top in the struggle for survival would by necessity be the men who were rugged, ruthless, brutal, savage, barbarian, and even predatory. And that's the language they started to use. And they started to say that, you know, it, it, since Darwin showed us we don't need a God, right? Natural selection does the job, so we don't need a God. Therefore, our, what we find out about ourselves as, as part of the animal world is really our true nature. So instead of urging men to live up to the image of God in them, yeah. they urged men to live down to their to the beast within, to the animal nature. Yeah, sure. I, I do use Tarzan as, as an example because this is when those books were written. And yes. the, the, uh, the son of the author literally writes that his father was writing these books to show that human beings are just part of the animal world and nothing more. Wow. And so, you know, Tarzan is presented as having that inner wildness, that inner strength because he was raised by the apes. And even after he learns European languages and customs, at the end, he turns to Jane and says, I'm still a wild beast at heart. And so that was uh, apparently the message of evolution was that, you know, men were brutal beasts. <laughs> and and by the way, what about women? Well, first of all, Darwin did say that women were intellectually inferior. He was very clear about that. Mm. So if part of toxic masculinity is denigrating women and considering them inferior and disrespecting them, Darwin bears a lot of uh, 
uh, responsibility for that as well. Mm. And one of the popularizers of Darwinism here in America was uh, Herbert Spencer. And he literally addresses the question of, well, if men really are these brutal beasts, <laughs> barbarian and savage and so on, how in the world do women get along with them? Mm. And he said, he said, it, women needed to learn the ability to please and placate. And then he added, it would also help if they learned to hide their resentment at such poor treatment. Mm. So this was the message of evolution. Men are brutal beasts. And women need to learn how to please and placate them and hide their resentment at being treated so badly. So I think many people don't realize how incredibly influential Darwinism was on the secular script of masculinity. And I, I should add that this isn't just historical because of, uh, social Darwinism, the application of Darwinism to social issues, has come back in a big way in our mm. own day. It's being called evolutionary psychology. And the idea is yeah. if your body evolved, then so did your whole mind, your whole feelings, you know, your, your whole psychology also has to be explainable by evolution. And this, again, the modern evolutionary thinkers are saying the same thing. There's a best-selling book, best-selling, so a lot of people are reading this, um, called The Moral Animal. Hmm. And in it, the author says, the human male is a possessive, flesh-obsessed pig. Wow. Giving a man a book on how to have a better marriage is like giving Vikings a book on how not to pillage. Wow. So we're still getting the idea that, you know, if, if, if you're not a Christian and if you are Darwinist, that the message to men is, uh, now I call that toxic. You have, yes, that's how we tell start. me about it. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. There's a song that uh, I didn't know what the words were. It's a very popular song. Well, maybe not as much anymore, maybe four or five years ago by Maroon 5. And I, I, I had to look up what the band was. And I, I found this tune was just like playing in the grocery store. And it was kind of a catchy tune to me. But then I saw the words and I was horrified. The, you know, the lead singers on the, you know, the voice and these type of things. I think somebody that people look at as a real manly sort of person. And they, it, it, the words are, baby, I'm praying on you tonight and not praying like you and I having a prayer meeting. Um, and it, it goes through and we're like animals, animals, animal olds. I mean, it's just like that's all it, it, it all we're doing is living by these instincts. And this reminds me like of Jude and uh, or says that we just survive the, these folks who are detracting from the gospel, who he's calling to contend for the faith. They're the ones who they need to resist those who are just living by these fleshly desires. But it's interesting to see this, the historical source being found in Darwinianism. Yes. And another popular song, it was popular maybe a decade ago or so, but you may remember this. Um it, it went like this. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do it on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> that was, an, that was no, one. I think, I'm sorry to say I don't know that. I'm glad to say I don't know that song. <laughs> I, I think I have it in Total Truth in one of my earlier books. But yeah, that, that was out for a while. And But, you know, it's, it's the language is sort of clever, but the message is incredibly destructive. You know, we're nothing but animals. And so, and he noticed that he immediately draws the implication, you know, that sexual immorality is natural to the human species then. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that is a common, a common uh, claim by evolutionary psychologists that men are just naturally promiscuous. You know, 
I, I didn't put that one in under brutal and savage. I should have added promiscuous because there that's another yeah. one that's very common for them to say that males are naturally promiscuous. And it's very important then for us as Christians to help call men back to a biblical understanding of masculinity, because even young Christian men, I think, are sometimes getting caught up in the secular script because it seems to be more manly. I just got an email from a former graduate student who teaches at a okay. Christian school. And she said, all our boys are into Andrew Tate. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the other side, like the man upside, right? The man up. Exactly. Script. Yeah. Yeah. The, the real man. Uh, exactly. And what is it? What is it about the church that we're not attracting these men? And that's another part of what I'm addressing in my book on masculinity is how can the church have a, a view of masculinity that encourages and and inspires men yes. and, and supports men. Yes. A lot of people have said what's good about my book, by the way, is that um, a Christian psychologist, so as a psychologist, he, he especially spent time on the introduction. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but the introduction is about how um, I was raised in a very abusive home that uh, my father was physically abusive. Mm -hmm. In books on abuse, they often ask, was it open hand or closed fist? Mm. And it was closed fists. It was, in fact, it was a knuckle fist. That he, he liked to use a knuckle fist to make it extra sharp pain. At any rate, so in, in a sense, what I say in the introduction is I've been writing this book my whole life. Wow. You're trying to come yeah. really work through to a positive biblical view of masculinity. And a psychologist said, you know, when I first read your introduction, I thought, oh, no, it's going to be an angry woman. Yes. <laughs> an abused woman, angry at men. And then he said, it's not. It's not that at all. It's very supportive. It's very positive towards masculinity and toward men. And so, you know, if a psychologist sees it that way, I'm, I'm really glad. So I hope, I hope yeah. other readers see that, too. Now, some people might come back, Nancy, and say, well, why should we even worry about men? You know, they occupy all the positions of power. I'm, I'm in, you know, the, the president of our institution is a man. I'm a man. The CFO is a man. Um, I mean, that, that's like maybe a common argument you might hear. Oh, you, absolutely. You hear it all the time. Um, and the answer to that is, yes, maybe about 5%, maximum 10% of men are in the top levels, the top echelons, the CEOs, the presidents. Uh, the Hollywood film producers, and so on. But the average man is actually doing worse than he was in the past, okay. both during, relative to where men were, but also relative to women. So, for example, boys are falling behind at all levels of education, from kindergarten, for goodness sakes, you know, where, where you're just learning how to use the scissors, from kindergarten through college. Most colleges now, on average, are 60% female, 40% male more women than men go on to graduate school and even professional schools like law and medicine. And then uh, and then when they graduate, men are doing worse as well. They're more likely to commit suicide, to be addicted to drugs and alcohol, to be homeless, to be mentally ill, to be in prison. 90% of prison inmates are male. And, uh, and male unemployment has gone down in recent years. It's not showing up in the unemployment statistics because they stopped looking for work. So researchers had to dig deeper, and now they're telling us that male unemployment levels are at depression-era levels. Wow. Depression-era. I mean, I was shocked when I read this. And male life expectancy is also going down. Women's is not. Male life expectancy has gone down in the last four or five years. And so that 
So that uh, one magazine that I quoted uh, called The New Scientist said the major demographic factor these days for early death is being male. Hmm. So I do think it's time to start having some compassion on men and saying, are there programs that we could institute that would support boys and men? Um, for example, uh, one woman, uh, one reason women are doing so well, and by the way, it's not a bad thing that women are doing well. We can't come across this if we think that's a bad thing. It's good. It's great that they're moving ahead and doing so well in education. Um, but one reason they are is because the 1994 Gender Equity Act poured billions of dollars into women's education, into uh, equity workshops and curriculum mm -hmm. that encourages girls and so on, which is great. There are now four times as many scholarships for women as for men. But now maybe it's time to do something for boys. There, was, there has never been anything comparable for boys. Mm. And so now we're seeing the result of that, which is that both boys and men are falling behind on several measures of well-being. Yeah. I'm the father of two sons. They're 16 and 14. I also have a daughter who's 12. And from your research and the way you're thinking about this and talking about this regularly, what practical steps can fathers take to be more involved with their sons. I, I I could tell you some of the things I'm trying to do. And also with my daughter too. Like, I feel like that's a part of the role that I have to play. Like part of defeating toxic masculinity or this myth of it, so to speak, is to make sure that I'm engaged. But what, what are you seeing from the research that would help us be better engaged? Well, I have two chapters on fatherhood. <laughs> um, we all know that fathers are regularly ridiculed and mocked in the media today, right? They're treated as the the, the bumbling idiot, the dimwit dad yeah. from, from movies to commercials to animated films like Homer Simpson. Right. Everyone knows Homer Simpson. Um, and I think that's one reason that fathers have actually pulled back from fathering in our own day so that 40% of American children are now growing up apart from their natural fathers. And Many of them never do see them at all. It's the highest rate of single parenthood in the world. Mm. So we have a problem. Yes. We do need to get fathers back involved with their kids. And so I look at the long term. Uh, it started with the Industrial Revolution. Before that, men worked alongside their wives and children all day in the on the family farm, the family business, the family industry. And so fathers and sons in particular um, we're working together all day. Fathers were teaching their kids the skills they needed for an adult life. Fathers were expected to be just as involved with their kids as mothers were. In right. fact, most books, most parenting books like sermons, advice manuals, and so on, were addressed to fathers. Mm. If you go to a bookstore today, they're mostly addressed to mothers. Yes. Back, back then, they were addressed to fathers because it was assumed the fathers were the primary parent. Uh, that, you know, after infancy, you know, where mothers play a bigger role, that it was fathers who had the major responsibility for spiritual and especially spiritual and intellectual development. And there was actually a word, house father. It mm. was common at the time. I mean, we say house wives, right? But they said house fathers. So it's, it's some, sometimes we need to see that uh, contrast historically to say, hey, wait a minute. This has not always been the case. Men uh, today, we would tend to think mothers are the primary parent. Back then, they thought fathers were the primary parent. In the Industrial Revolution, of course, work was taken out of the home. Mm -hmm. 
And fathers had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And that's when you first start to see people saying, uh, fathers are getting disconnected from their kids. You know, that they no longer intricately involved in their children's lives. They don't know their children's needs. And for the already in the 19th century, you start to see literature saying, you know, fathers are becoming sort of irrelevant. Hmm. They're not part of the family anymore. Um, they're becoming incompetent. The idea that men are somehow more incompetent as parents, you don't see that until after the Industrial Revolution, when fathers, in fact, were less involved with the kids. And so they didn't know as much what their children needed. And those uh, literature of the day really lamented. We're so used to it now. But the literature of the day expressed enormous shock and trauma over the loss of fathers. One woman, uh, one of the uh, best-known women writers of the 19th century, said, the father is supposed to be the prototype of the heavenly father. Yes. And yet he's hardly in the home except on the weekends. Mm. So I do have a whole chapter on are there practical things that we can do to sort of adjust the workplace now, even though we're not going to ever undo the Industrial Revolution. Uh, uh, the, the pandemic actually had a silver lining, which is that yes. a lot of fathers discovered they did like working from home more and being more involved with their kids. In one survey, 65% of fathers said they did not want to go back to the office full time. Mm. They yes. wanted a, at least a, a hybrid model. Yes. And the New York Times, uh, that one's in the book. Then there's one that's not in the book because it came out later. But the New York Times had an article saying during the pandemic, Fathers got closer to their children, and they don't want to lose that. Amen. So I, I do give a lot of personal anecdotes about people who found ways to work more from home. Um, and I have to, of course, I have to talk about the CEOs recognizing, hey, it actually worked. I, I quote one, for example, who said, we were afraid to let people work remotely because we thought productivity would go down. Mm. And then he said the pandemic completely exploded that fear productivity did not go down. And in fact, we had, uh, because people are much happier working with right. their kids and the, being close to the family, you know, having lunch with their family. Um, the, an, another CEO put it this way. Um, we've discovered, we've discovered that giving fathers time to be better fathers <laughs> makes them better workers. Oh, you know, interesting. Yeah. It's yeah. a win-win. They actually, you know, if, they may not come in on weekends and so on as often, but the time they put into the work, they're more, uh, they're more dedicated, they're more focused, and they end up being better workers. So, uh, can I? Get, I'll give you just one anecdote. Yeah, anecdote I love sometimes it. Yeah. you know sort of crystallize things. So, one of my own graduate students is married to an IT professional who came home, worked from home during that pandemic, and because he was home, he was more involved with the homeschooling. He decided he would be the one to make lunch for the family every day. He was able to take his kids to soccer and choir practice. And he he picked up so many of the family responsibilities that his wife was able to start a part-time business. And the whole family benefited from the added income. Mm. So I interviewed the father. And he said, our family life is so much more balanced now. I am never going back to 40 hours in a cubicle. Beautiful. And then there's a final kicker. And that is, he said, the time... I used to spend commuting to work. I now spend praying every morning with my wife. Yes. Oh, so, yeah, great. isn't that cool? Um, you, you have to sort of uh, explain in anecdotes what people can do. 
But yes. I had a lot of anecdotes of people who did find a way to work around their family and be more involved. Yeah, I love that. I've just personally I made a transition from serving in the Salvation Army to serving in the academy at Wesley Biblical Seminary. And fortunately, we found a house that was just five minutes from the seminary. So most days I go home for lunch. And uh, I love that. And and at the same time, we also switched to homeschooling. So it's it's interesting switch that's happened in my life too. And I can see some of those benefits of being more present and being more available. Now, I also am interested as a, somebody who trains pastors and has served as a pastor that you talk at the end of your book about the problems of abuse in Christian homes. Is there, do you have any thoughts on how churches and church leaders can respond more effectively to those situations? Yes. The most common mistake is to think that abuse is a marriage problem, and therefore you should bring both husband and wife into the, uh, into the office, into the pastor's office at the same time. Uh, fortunately, there are, being, there are books being written by Christians, Christian therapists, Christian psychologists, who are pointing out that that doesn't really work for mm. two reasons. One is abuse is not a relationship issue. Abuse is a sin issue. Um, as, one, as one Christian psychologist put it, if a man is willing to hurt his wife to get what he wants, that's not a relational issue. That's a, that's a heart issue right. for the man. But the second reason is that um, a woman is probably not going to be open about abuse because she knows that once she leaves the office, she'll be punished. Hmm. And I gave an example that was related by a, psych a psychotherapist who said um, there was a, a couple that, uh, that the therapist felt like they had reached the point where they could talk openly about the abuse happening in their, in their marriage. And so the wife related the abuse. And in the therapist office, the man looked shaken and repentant. But on the way home, in the car, he kept one hand on the steering wheel. And with his other hand, he grabbed her hair and smashed her face into the dashboard, yeah. saying, I told you never to talk to anyone about that, except wow. he used very yeah. coarse language. And so that would be an example of uh, the, the kind of harm that can happen to the victim, you know, in a truly abusive situation. Um, she doesn't, she's not going to, she's not going to talk about it. She knows, she knows she'll be punished. Um, and so you can inadvertently actually uh, uh, encourage more abuse by bringing them together. So um, that that's the first thing is don't treat it as a marriage problem. Okay, um, sin problem. The sin problem. And and what do you do with the sin problem? Second point, Matthew 18. Here you go. <laughs> um, you know, Jesus tells us how to deal with sin, that you are supposed to confront it. Yes, lovingly, gently, you know, doesn't mean you have to be rude about it. Um, but you do have to let people know that if they're sinning, this is wrong and they should not continue to do it they need to repent and change their behavior and if the woman if the woman can't do it because her husband's going to beat her up for confronting him uh which does happen um you know then the church has to stand alongside her and that's what jesus says right bring people from the church um yes. and then if they if he if it still is a problem um that church might have to take disciplinary action uh, so I think uh, I'm glad I wrote the book when I did, because there are a number of Christian therapists and psychologists and even seminary professors like Stephen Tracy at Phoenix Seminary, who's written a lot about this issue, um, who are now saying um, the the answer for churches 
is to learn to uh, confront in a, in a in the right way, but to confront mm-hmm. somebody. Uh, and uh, just to let you know why, how this is different, I, I sh- should have probably started with most, up until recently, most books on abuse made it the woman's problem. They said, if you would just love more, if you would submit right, more, right, right, if, if right. you would forgive more, if you would make his favorite meals, if you would have sex more, if you, um, right. then he will blossom into the man you want him to be. And that's been the major message for a long time. And the th- people are finally starting to say, actually, that doesn't work. You know, we all know that if you're dealing with a bully, you don't right. acquiesce, you don't placate, whether it's the playground bully or whether it's in international affairs, you know, a belligerent nation. We all know what happens if you try to placate somebody, like we know that from World War II, right? Yeah, um, sure. And it's it's just odd that no one ever applied it to marriage, but now finally people are. They're starting to say, actually, to tell a wife to just love more, forgive more, placate, placate and please him more, well, then he has no reason to change. He thinks everything's fine. You know, people who are actually abusive take forgiveness as acceptance of bad behavior. They mm. take kindness as weakness. And so the older the older um, books, and I read, I read plenty of them, <laughs> the older books are unfortunately are being superseded now by books that say, no, it, you, you do need to stand up to sin, even, even mm. in marriage. If, you, if people who are listening to my podcast will know I've had Dr. David E. Clark on three or four times. Oh, you know him. Great. Yeah. <laughs> and- uh, he is, he's the, honestly, he's so good on this topic. And uh, he, and I'm having him on again here soon. He's going to become a regular guest. And honestly, part of the reason, Nancy, that I do it is every time I have him on, I find somebody who's able to escape a difficult situation. And he's, he speaks so directly to it. He, doesn't he? I mean, yes, he's very direct. <laughs> he, he's one of my, he's one of my key sources. Okay, and when I great. say that, when I say Christians are finally figuring out um, that that the message to an abused woman is not um, try to please him more, try to love him more, try to forgive him more. I mean, I, I should pause and say, of course you start there. Um, mm. Because people who have not experienced abuse often don't understand. And they even thought my book was too harsh. And I had to go back several times and say, well, of course you start there. Love more, forgive more, et cetera. You know, we all need to learn how to right, do that more. Right. So that let's let's make sure we say that first. But if you have a truly abusive husband or spouse, you know sometimes it is a woman, but statistically it's more likely the man. Um, uh, David Clark, by the way, he he talks about that the advice that women have been given to to love more, forgive more, and so on. He calls that the wimpy, the the weak wimpy walk all over me approach. Yes, <laughs> and he is adamant that it does not work. So uh, yeah. I, I like him a lot. Yeah. And, and he goes after, as he calls the narcs, you've got a narc and a narcissist, you know, like, like it, so he's just like really hits, hits them hard, like trying to encourage. And he takes this from a biblical perspective. Every book he has presents the gospel, but really trying to move us to a place where we're not going to allow this happen again. We're not going to have enabling behavior towards somebody who's going to hurt someone else. So I really recommend 
you know, this, these chapters in your book, and of course, some of the podcasts and books from, from Dr. Clark as well. Um, this is so interesting. I want to make sure people know this is a more to story podcast. And we're so thankful to have Nancy Piercy on in her book, the toxic war notice too the, the, the order of those words, the toxic war on masculinity, Nancy, how can people connect with you and how can they get a copy of this book? So the book is available on Amazon, like everything is. That's right. Uh, although if you prefer uh, christianbook.com or if you're lucky enough to have a brick and mortar store and um, you can come and check out and browse my other books. I have a new uh, website. My publisher very thoughtfully gave me a new website that's colorful and fun. So come over and nancypiercy.com. P-E-A-R-C-E-Y, nancypiercy.com. Come on over, browse my other books. You've mentioned a couple of my other books um, and leave a comment. I do read the comments. I can't answer all of them, but I read them. So come on over to my website as well, nancypiercy.com. Great. And, and we'll leave a link to that in the show notes and a link to the, uh, so people can get this book. Now, Nancy, one of the things that I do is uh, our podcast is called More to the Story. So I always like to ask a question. There's more to the story. So I mean, you've talked about these books, um, but I'm curious just a little bit more about you. Is there like a hobby that you have? Is there more to the story of Nancy Piercy than to normally told in an interview? Well, you warned me that this question was coming. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> and, and I said, well, I do play the violin. And when you say hobby... Uh, probably the thing I I love the most is playing the violin, and it's on the top of my mind right now because I just came home from visiting my mother, who's a professional violinist, and so we play duets every day, oh, um, and and great. and that is really special. Um, music, you know, music is just such a fulfilling thing to do. So um, unfortunately, here in in Houston, I don't get very many opportunities. So that's that's a real gift when I get to go play duets with my mother <laughs> so that, oh. that's that's uh i guess the more to the story my mom being a professional musician did make sure that she had six kids she made sure that every one of them played an instrument so uh growing up i always heard somebody practicing right okay <laughs> and I, I loved it i loved growing up with music in the home all the time so well it's I a good that. way for men to connect with their children. We're talking like for men to sing with their children. What a great thing. We try and do that in my house. We sing, even if we're, you know, just acapella, uh, make music together. It's a great thing. Um, Nancy, thank you so much for coming on podcast. It's a podcast. It's such an honor to have you. I admire you. I appreciate the way that you function as an intellectual in society. And I've, I've you know, just looked you up and followed what you've done lately. It means a lot to me that you come on and we thank you for the work you're doing for the kingdom. Oh, thank you so much. And it's been really a joy getting a chance to talk with you. I appreciate it. <laughs>